Well, hi, everyone. I'm Janabi. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. I'm really happy to see new friends, old friends. Um, so normally what Melissa and I do is we just go through the text of the big book. We'll spend a week or half a week on a chapter and occasionally do a topic that we think is like cool and interesting. And we are up to the chapter two wives. So a couple of years ago, um, I did a formal talk on that chapter. And I love this chapter. It doesn't get much play, but I love it. So um, here we go. Um, and actually, I cannot think, if we think about it, of too many people who feel more lonely than the wife of an alcoholic, right? <laughs> Imagine waiting up for him night after night, not knowing when or even if he's coming home. And if he does, Will he be sullen and silent or raging and abusive? And imagine if you have kids and you watch your children learn how to be silent and tiptoe around the house and make themselves small so that daddy doesn't notice them, right? It's easy to imagine that this wife, even though she may have been a woman of faith all her life, it's easy to imagine her whispering in the dark, God, where are you? Do you even hear me? And then we get to this chapter, Two Wives, where it says on page 104 that we want to leave you with the feeling that no situation is too difficult and no unhappiness too great to overcome. And I mean, when I read it, I can almost feel these wives who've gone before us reaching out to this struggling wife saying, you matter to us. And I think if we listen closely, whether we're a wife of an alcoholic or just a compulsive eater in the food, in the pages of this book, we really can hear God saying, you matter to me. And I know for me, that's the only thing that really matters at all. Um, and of course it's true because when we get into the meat of this chapter, we'll see it. But first um, I just wanna turn back to one of my favorite parts of the big book, um, chapter four, We Agnostics, where they tell us the main purpose of this big book. And it says, quote, to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. Okay, so if this power, this God is going to enable me to solve my problem, and of course, right, the first problem I wanted him to solve was my food problem, this God must care about me, must love me. So that's the God, this loving God who we matter to, who tonight in the next like 40 minutes will try to encounter in the pages of Two Wives. So as I said, this chapter generally doesn't get a lot of airplay. Often people skip it saying, well, I'm not married to an alcoholic. It doesn't apply to me. But I think there's a lot of principles here that we can apply in our own recovery. Because really, my recovery is not primarily about food plans and meetings. It's about how I practice spiritual principles in all my affairs. Because if I don't do that, I can have the world's best food plan and go to the world's best meetings and I won't be able to stay abstinent. Um, for someone new, that may sound weird, right? When I came to my first OA meeting, I just wanted to stop binging. So I wanted that magic food plan. Well, it didn't work. Six and a half years in OA, still binging, never getting abstinent. And finally, finally, thank God, someone told me I had to change, had to have this thing called a spiritual experience. And like, what the heck is that? Well, page 25 explains it. It's basically when God rewires my heart. 
Okay. Now how does that happen? Do I just like say a prayer and like God comes in with some electrical tools? No, I tried that. It doesn't work. Um, but we have this 12 step program, which tells me I need to get a conception of God, surrender, clean up my past, and then practice spiritual principles in all my affairs. And if anyone wants a list of the spiritual principles in the big book, Karen M. put them together. They're on our website. And um, Denise, if you could throw the link in the website, that would be great. Um, so some spiritual principles we have to practice if we want to have this spiritual experience are honesty, right? If we're not honest, it's like we're taking a big black Sharpie and writing the words, keep out God across our hearts. God won't coexist with dishonesty. And by the way, we don't have to wait until we're at a certain step to start practicing basic spiritual principles. Right away, we're told we have to be honest. We have to be unselfish. And the chapter two wives has some other really cool spiritual principles and some wonderful promises if we practice these principles. Um, I don't have time to go through every single one. So I just picked out the ones that I thought would be most helpful. Um, so the first half of the chapter is really about how to help someone who's an addict. And then halfway through, it does this really big switcheroo like, okay, wife, now let's talk about you and your spiritual issues. So let's dive in. If you have your book, page 104, um, on the last paragraph there, it says, we want to analyze mistakes we've made. We want to leave you with the feeling that no situation is too difficult and no unhappiness too great to be overcome. And I love that because what it's telling me is God is going to do one of two things if I work these principles. He's either going to change my situation or he's going to change me so that I'll be okay in a hard situation. Um, to me, that's a big demonstration of how much I matter to God. Door number one, he sits at his cosmic computer and reroutes things so that my situation is changed for the better. Door number two, he changes my heart. Okay, so let's go on to the bottom of page 106. It talks about what happens to an addict as the sprees grow closer together. And I'm sure we can all relate to this from our own experiences. It says the deepening pall of remorse, depression, and inferiority settled down on our loved ones. And these things terrified and distracted us. Terrified and distracted us. Okay, distracted us from what? I know that if I become overly focused on a family member or anything else, um, I'm distracted from God and that's not good. You know, sometimes as moms, people have said to me at least, um, oh, it's natural that you worry that you're, you're a mom, you know, as if like they go together, worried and mom go together and they really don't. Um, the way I think of it is like I'm swimming in one of those lap pools that has those lanes roped off and I'm swimming toward God. And I visualize that. And if I start swimming in another lane, I lose focus on God and doing his will. Other people's recovery and how they're doing and their future are things that are not in my lane. Um, I have one child who stopped going to college and is working, kind of looking for a menial job. And I just say, I don't sit there and say, I spent all this money on college. What I really say is it's not my business and I can have perfect peace about it. Um, Okay, 
page 107 at the top, it says that as animals on a treadmill, we patiently and wearily climbed, falling back in exhaustion after each futile attempt to reach solid ground. And it reminds me of that like little hamster in a cage on that wheelie thing. He's working and working and getting nowhere. And that's how I was in my early days of recovery. I worked really hard and I didn't get anywhere. In fact, I actually got worse my first six and a half, seven years in OA. Um, because even though I was doing a lot of work, I wasn't doing the right work. It was like being a diabetic and the doctor tells me to pay, take penicillin and I take penicillin. Well, I'm doing the work. I'm doing what I'm told, but I haven't been doing the right thing. I need a new doctor who gives me correct information so I can take the correct medicine. So my caution here, um, if you read this book, if you're new and you're looking for a sponsor, don't just assume that the first person who says I'm an available sponsor is the right person that God put in your path. That's actually not true. We have a right to vet our sponsors, right? If we're going to a doctor, we want to find out if it's a good doctor. This is a person who's going to guide us into our relationship with God. We want to make sure this person works the steps the way they're outlined in this book, that they live this way of life. Okay, page 108, second full paragraph. It says, try not to condemn your alcoholic husband, no matter what he says or does. He's just another very sick, unreasonable person. When he angers you, remember he's very ill. So I see two things they're telling me to practice here with difficult people. And again, this could be a spouse, a boss, my kids. First, don't condemn. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. First, condemning never works, right? Who of us is here in recovery because someone said to us, you know, you're a really horrible compulsive eater. You're overweight, you're ruining your life, you're ruining other people's lives. Get your act together. I mean, who of us heard that and then said, oh yeah, I didn't know that. Thanks for the condemnation. I think I'll go work a 12-step program and get my act together. Not one of us is here because of that, right? Um, and also, if I'm condemning someone, it's dangerous for me spiritually, because if I'm condemning you, then I'm at the top of the mountain, and guess where you are, right? At the bottom. And that means I'm loaded with pride, and the only place to go if I'm up on a mountain full of pride is down, and not very comfortably. Um, the second thing, right? It says, when he angers you, remember he's very ill. Remember, that's an a verb, an action step I can take. I can remind myself this person is ill, right? When we're resolving resentments, we say that perhaps this person is perhaps spiritually sick. If I'm living with a raging alcoholic, that person is sick and I need compassion. Um, the kind I would have if I was living some, with someone who had a brain tumor that made them act in horrible ways. Um, this was about, uh, now it's probably a year and a half ago, I went to pick up my mom for a doctor's appointment. And before I got there, she got all agitated and had the front desk of her place call me to see where I was. Now I was right on time and I was a little annoyed. And I'm like, mom, why'd you have them call me? I'm not late. But a few weeks later, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So now when she gets agitated or you know, when she would do that or say things that weren't the nicest, I didn't have any annoyance or resentment because I understood that she was sick. She couldn't help it. Um, 
Okay, so then in the book, they go ahead and talk about the four different types of drinkers and what we can do to help them depending on what type they are, um, different things. So it's really good if we have, again, a family member who's an alcoholic, let's see what type they are. And it gives us very practical and specific guidance. But at the top of page 11, they start with general principles that can be applied to all. They say that the first principle of success is to never be angry. Okay, how am I not going to be angry if I've got someone who's mentally ill or drinking or abusive? But remember, page 66 tells me I can't harbor resentments. I can't be a safe harbor for resentments. I can't just say, okay, this person gets me mad and I'm entitled to wallow in it. What I'm supposed to do is acknowledge I'm angry, but then I have to do something about it. I inventory it, share it with someone ask God to remove it and make amends and ask God to remove it. I've seen, isn't always just it. It's not an incantation or a magical formula. It's not, I ask instantly it's gone. Um, in the chapter, I can't remember what it's called, but it's um, someone will stick in the chat or shout it out. The chapter where it has the prayer for resentments that we say every day for two weeks for a person. So if we have a resentment, um, we don't just say, God, please remove it. We, we have some skin in the game. We spend some time in prayer for that person. I have had some... Um, almost miraculous, I, I won't even say almost miraculous experiences where I was so angry that I was crying, that I just was ready to just tell my boss to move me to a different area of the company because I wouldn't work with someone and starting to say the resentment prayer and that waking up feeling on like, let's say day six of saying it, feeling so angry. And by the middle of the day, that anger was gone, like someone put a pin in a balloon. Our program gives us a way to really resolve anger. So again, end of that paragraph, again, still first paragraph on page 111, they say patience and good temper are most necessary because again, it's a disease we're dealing with, not a moral issue. The second principle they give us, they say, our next thought is you should never tell him what he must do about his drinking. And I say about his fill in the blank. And the best example I have is my husband. He didn't drink, but he used to smoke and I did not like it at all. But honestly, I never told him what he needed to do about his smoking. I just said, honey, we have a couple little kids. If you're going to keep smoking, we need to take out some life insurance on you. Um, and then I actually asked him, how often can I tell you that I don't like you smoking? And I think he said once a month and I stuck with that. And by the way, he did ultimately quit smoking, but not because I nagged him. I suspect if I nagged him, he'd still be puffing away in the garage. Um, but again, I did get the life insurance because that was a boundary to protect myself and my children. We can set boundaries for ourselves, but we can't stay in a state of anger. Third principle says, be determined that your husband's drinking. Again, your kid's refusal to listen to you, your boss not appreciating your work. Be determined that someone else's something you don't like is not going to spoil your life. And they say it's possible to have a full and useful life, even though your husband continues to drink. And I would say, even though whoever in your life continues to do whatever we don't like them doing. 
Our book tells us our recovery is not dependent on circumstances. It's dependent only upon our relationship with God, which as an aside has to be one of trust and obedience. And if anyone's struggling with that, we have lots of podcasts on it or call me. I love, love, love talking about that. Um, so again, if I'm too upset over what someone else is doing, there's a problem with my relationship with God, right? Um, I would say in my recovery, the biggest block I had was anger and fear surrounding my children. And again, sometimes well-meaning friends would say, well, it's normal you worry about them. You're a mom. But I worried because my attention was in the wrong place. Um, here's a prayer that I found that helped me a lot with my kids, and hopefully it'll help you too. Um, Lord, I see that I don't really love my children too much. I love you too little in proportion to them. Only if I love you supremely will I love everything else well and properly. Lord, capture my heart. Amen. Again, I pray for God to capture my heart so I can love him supremely and then I can love everyone else properly. Fourth principle they list on this page says, do not set your heart on reforming your husband. You may be unable to do so no matter how hard you try. Remember, this program tells me to live and let live. So I cannot set my heart on reforming my husband's smoking, my kid's decision not to go to church, or anyone else's eating, drinking, gambling, fill in the blank. Um, they've given me four principles so far. Don't get angry. Don't tell him what to do about his drinking. Be determined his drinking is not going to spoil your life. And don't set your heart on changing the person. And they acknowledge that these suggestions are sometimes difficult, but they say you will save many a heartbreak if you can succeed in observing them. So if my heart is broken, I can ask myself, which of these principles have I violated? Have I gotten angry and harbored resentment? Have I been telling someone what they need to do about what I perceive as their issues? Am I letting what someone else is doing destroy my life? Am I setting my heart on changing someone? Of course, I can hope, I can pray, but my heart needs to be set on one thing primarily, and that's God and doing whatever his will is for me. And God always has a big, beautiful, creative will for us and a way that we can be happy in service to him and to our fellows. Um, okay, then we get a promise there at the end of the second paragraph, page 115. It says, your new courage, good nature, and lack of self-consciousness will do wonders for you socially. So if I practice these principles, I'm going to start getting more courage. That means my fears are going to go away or at least lessen. I'm going to have a good nature because I won't be so tense from trying to control the world. I'm not going to worry about what people think about me. And of course, that'll help me be a better friend. Sixth principle, still on page 115. It says, in dealing with kids and their father, it's best not to take sides in any argument he has with them while drinking. A rule I always had with myself when my kids were little was that unless my husband was doing something dangerous, I wouldn't interfere. I think we have to be careful with the word dangerous because I could interpret it very loosely to mean anything I don't agree with. Um, I mean, I thought taking them to McDonald's when they were little kids was dangerous. Um, but I'm talking about I should keep my mouth shut unless my husband did something genuinely dangerous, like 
leave them in the bathtub when they're two years old and go outside and take a walk, which of course he never did. No one called Dyfus. He never did that. Um, in hindsight, I should have kept my mouth shut a lot more than I did. And they talk about something similar at the beginning of this chapter. Back on page 106, it says, we've tried to hold the love of our children for their father which is an instinctive thing for a mom to do if she thinks her husband is doing absolutely everything wrong and that her kids won't love them. When my kids were younger, I manipulate, I tried to manipulate relationships and think things like, okay, if I don't tell my husband to go outside and play basketball with Daniel, then he's not going to have a good relationship with Daniel. And when Daniel grows up, he's going to remember my husband's neglect and hate him. I mean, that's really what I thought just because my husband didn't want to go play basketball when I thought he should. Well, Daniel is now 21 and he adores my husband way more than he adores me actually, um, who did everything right. Um, my job is to let other people have their own relationships and not try to manage and control them, either to get people to love each other or if I'm mad at one family member to get the other family members to be on my side and be mad at them too. Um, bottom of page 115, seventh principle. Don't lie on behalf of your husband in order to protect him. We are people who have to be honest, even if there will be consequences. In the chapter to employers, it says that someone, that sometimes an employer may worry that the guy's drunk when his wife calls and says he's sick. And it says, if he's trying to recover and he's drunk, he will tell you even if it means the loss of his job. So we don't try to shield people from the consequences of their action by lying. Then on page 116, there's a shift. It's like they're saying, okay, up until now, we're talking about how to help your husband, but now let's talk about you. And they say, elsewhere we've remarked how much better life is when lived on a spiritual plane. If God can solve the age-old riddle of alcoholism, he can solve your problems too. And I can just see a wife reading this, like, wait, me too? No, no, no. I'm here to, you know, help the drunk I'm married to. And they're saying, me too? Like, no way, Jose. But they gently press on and say, we wives found that like everyone else, we were afflicted with pride, self-pity, vanity, self-centeredness, selfishness, and dishonesty. And then at the bottom of that page, they say, yeah, we used to think we were good, capable of being nice if our husband stopped drinking, right? Like I wouldn't have been nasty if my husband, my kids, my boss, um, my fill in the blank hadn't done whatever. But remember, my recovery is never dependent on circumstances. It's always dependent on my relationship with God. And it says, okay, here's the solution. Try to put spiritual principles to work in every department of your life. And if we practice the opposite, so the opposite would be humility, gratitude, unselfishness, honesty, and self-sacrifice. On page 117, it tells us that if we practice these things, this is so beautiful, it says, God will give us a radically changed attitude toward our husband. Like God sees me, I matter to God. God himself will see the work I'm doing, even if my husband doesn't. And he will radically rewire my heart. So as a result of applying these spiritual principles, it tells me the gifts that God will give me. Lack of fear, lack of worry, 
lack of hurt feelings. But then they tell me something I don't really like. On page 117, it says, all problems will not be solved at once. The old problems will still be with you. And this is as it should be. This is as it should be. Okay, God's not gonna wave a magic wand and make all my problems go away as soon as I get to step 12. I mean, I'm just saying like, if I were God, I would do it differently. I would wave that magic wand. But I think I'm learning here, whenever I'm going through a difficult situation, is that difficult situations force me to rely on God more and force me to look at really the idols in my life. Um, do I have an idol of a perfect marriage? That's what some of us have. Do I have an idol of perfect children? My idol was having the perfect relationship with my children. I was often paralyzed with fear that when my children grew up and were no longer under my control, they wouldn't love me anymore. And that fear led me to alternate between being overly lenient to manipulate them into loving me, to overly tough, to just retaliate when I didn't think they loved me right. I'm happy to report that God is good. These relationships ships have mended. I'm close with both of my kids now, but it took a lot of inventory work and amends and prayer. And here's a prayer I've used, which of course can be changed to fit anything that's too important. But I use this for idolatry with my kids. Lord, I entrust my children to you. I release them to your protective care, knowing that they're much safer with you than in my clinging hands. Please remove all idolatry of my children and my relationship with my children from my heart so that I don't endanger them or myself. Please remove all fear that I won't matter to them. I release my children to you and I release my fear to you so that I'm free to cling to your hand. Thank you that as I entrust my children to you, you're free to shower blessings on them. Thank you that your presence goes with them wherever they go. Thank you that you will guide my children and help them learn to trust you. Thank you that I matter to you. Thank you that your presence stays with me as I relax and trust you. Lord, I'm excited to watch and see what you will do. Okay, back to the book, page 117. Um, they continue on and say that these workouts, meaning these difficult discussions we sometimes have to have, should be regarded as part of your education. You will make mistakes, but if so, and this is a conditional promise, if you're in earnest, they won't drag you down. Instead, you will capitalize on them. Okay, what does that mean to capitalize on my mistakes? Well, I don't think it means I'm going to be 100% free of things like fear and anger. I don't think in this lifetime it's ever going to be 100%. But here's what can happen. Our bounce back period can get shorter. So whereas before, maybe I got a resentment or a fear and I'd be angry for three days or afraid for three days or so depressed I couldn't get out of bed for three days. Then maybe after working these steps, it's down to two days, then one day, then two hours, then 10 minutes. Um, I haven't always got it down to 10 minutes, but I can generally keep it way less than I used to. And so that's a way of knowing if we're growing spiritually, if our bounce back period is shorter. And then how do we capitalize on our mistakes? Well, the steps, steps teach me that I need to look at my part. So like if one of my kids is mouthing off to me, for example, and I get really upset, I don't stop with, she mouthed off to me. My part is I had an expectation that my children don't mouth off to me. I need to go deeper than that and look at the flaws in my makeup. 
Am I making an idol out of how much I matter to my children? Um, we can tell something's an idol when it doesn't just hurt our feelings, when it feels like we got punched in the gut and we can't get up. So what do I do when I identify what my idol is? I talk to someone who won't enable me. We should all have a group of friends who won't and who love us, but won't enable us. If they don't enable us, but they're mean, that's no good. And if they just love us, but they're enabling, that's no good either. Love and truth. Um, we repent. We inventory it. We tell God we're sorry. We ask him to remove the defect of idolatry, remove the fear, remove the anger. And we set about practicing the opposite. And for me, the opposite of idolatry is true worship of God. So I don't know, maybe the solution is to just go and sing a worship song if I see that um, I need to practice the opposite. Next principle, bottom of 117 says, Often you must carry the burden of avoiding resentments or keeping them under control. And in the margin of my big book, I wrote, it's not fair. Maybe it isn't fair, but it's loving. And remember, fairness isn't our code anymore. The big book says love and tolerance is my code. Fairness is not my code. Um, what a great opportunity to practice self-sacrifice. If someone utters a snarky remark, I can try not to start an argument. I absorb it. I just let it go. That's a way of practicing self-sacrifice, which is critical to my own recovery. Now, again, I'm not saying that if someone's married to someone who's beating them, they're supposed to just take it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the occasional insensitive remark. Sometimes it's okay to just let things go. Um, next principle, page 118, second full paragraph. It says, your husband knows he owes you more than sobriety. He wants to make good, yet you must not expect too much. And I think there's a couple things here. One, if I don't expect too much, then I'm not disappointed. I'm always happily surprised. But also when it says he wants to make good, I think we're supposed to assume the best about people, that people generally wanna do the right thing. Maybe I'm wrong, but isn't it better assuming the best in people rather than assuming the worst? That's how I want people to deal with me, especially when I'm cranky. Um, next principle, page 119. When resentful thoughts come, try to pause and count your blessing. So we can intentionally look for our blessings. Like I have a job, I have heat in my house, air conditioning in the summer, a husband who loves me and supports my recovery work. Um, and I don't, and we don't just sit there and put these blessings on an app. I thank God for them. Like th I, I actually say like, thank you for my husband who provides for me. Thank you for my job. Thank you for my children are safe. You know, we don't just list them like a grocery list. We use gratitude is a way of expressing our thankfulness to God. And that's another way of building a relationship with him. So critical principle, bottom of page 119, it says, find a great cause to live for. You probably need fresh interest as much as your husband. How lucky are we, right? We get to recover, help others, get closer to God in the process. I can't think of a greater cause. And then top of page 120, they tell us how to live that out. They, they say, think about what you can put into life instead of how much you can take out of it. So maybe when we go places, we think, what can I contribute here instead of what's in it for me? We think, how can I best serve God and the people here? 
And then finally, they talk about what to do if someone drinks again. And I love how they deal with it. On page 120, they say, perhaps your husband's made a fair start and things are going well, but then he gets drunk. What do you do? They say, if you're satisfied, he really wants to get over drinking. You need not be alarmed. So what they're telling us here is that it's possible to really, really want to recover, but stumble. Remember, um, the forward to the second edition says that 25% of the original fellowship who really tried, says really tried, recovered after some relapse. Imagine if they just given up on that 25%. And by the way, I would have been included in that 25%. And I bet a lot of us here would as well. Um, so they tell us not to be alarmed at the man's relapse. And they say, though it's infinitely better that he has no relapse at all, as has been true with many of our men, it's not a bad thing if, so here's the only reason relapse is okay. If the person realizes he has to redouble his spiritual activities. What does that mean to redouble our spiritual activities? It means work the steps harder, more self-sacrifice for sure, more doing things for others, more time with God, more surrender of things. I'm not quite willing to surrender to God more service and mostly more love. And they tell us if he gets drunk, don't blame yourself. Remember, I am never the cause of someone else's relapse or binging and no one else is ever the cause of mine. And at the bottom of page 120, it says, God has either removed your husband's liquor problem or he has not. If not, it had better be found out right away then you and your husband can get right down to fundamentals. If a repetition is to be prevented, place the problem along with everything else in God's hands. Okay, there's a lot here and a lot that can help us as compulsive eaters. So let's try to break it down. It says, God has either removed your husband's liquor problem or he has not. Or for us, God has either removed our compulsive eating problem or he's not. And what does that even mean? Is God up in heaven flipping a coin? Heads, I'll remove Janet's eating problem. Tails, I won't. No, no. They're telling me that if God hasn't removed my food problem, it's because I've not placed my food problem and everything else in his hands. Remember, chapter four tells us that God is either, that either God is everything or else he's nothing, meaning I have to give God everything or it's a or it's as if I gave him nothing. I can't give him my food plan, but cheat on my husband or cheat on my taxes. So I think what they're telling us is to see what we haven't placed in his hands and then do it. That's what the fundamentals are. It makes me think of like middle school social studies where we learned about like the king and the serfs. And as long as the serfs were on the king's land, when the invading army comes to attack, the king pulls up the drawbridge. And if I'm on his land, I'm protected. But if I wander off through dishonesty, lack of surrender, refusal to make amends, or just plain old thinking, I know better than the king, then when the invading army comes and I'm not on the king's land, I'm not safe and protected. Not for one second because the king doesn't love me, but because I've wandered off. So they're telling us that we are liable to drink or eat compulsively if we wander off the king's land. But the good thing about this king is that he will always, always take us back. And I believe he will launch a search and rescue mission to help bring us back. 
Okay, final page of this chapter, page 121, the writers of this big book say, we realize this is hard stuff, but we really wanna help you avoid unnecessary difficulties. And then they conclude by saying, good luck and God bless you. They're asking God, the creator who flung the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the planets into place to bless us. Blessing means to confer divine favor, to confer his divine favor on us. And if we approach him in humility, he always will. Because whether we are wives living with raging alcoholics who feel we are unseen and unheard, or compulsive eaters who feel that our lives are unmanageable and that no human power can save us, we matter. We always matter to God. And if you don't believe it, again, get with some of us and you know we'll help you with that. What my sponsor always says is that it's a sponsor's job to take her sponsee's hand and put it in the hand of God. And with that, I pass. Thanks.